You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Presents podcast. This week, we bring you Danielle DiMartino Booth and George Goncalves. The former Fed insider and the former primary dealer insider talk about the latest Fed meeting, the beggar thy neighbor monetary policy that the Federal Reserve and other central banks have espoused over the last decade, and recent issues with U.S. dollar liquidity. Then they talk about the prospects for a standing repo facility from the Fed, which would essentially be QE light. This was filmed right after the Fed meeting on September 18th. We hope you enjoy it. For Real Vision, I'm Drew Bissett. I'm Danielle DiMartino Booth with Real Vision, and I've got a special treat for you this afternoon. I've got George Goncalves with me. He's a 20-year veteran of the street. He and I go way back to my time when I was an advisor to Richard Fisher at the Dallas Fed, and George was one of my closest confidants and advisors and guided me through all of the mechanics of the bond market throughout the financial crisis. Uh, Richard Fisher knows George by name and came to rely on his his really in-depth knowledge of how the bond market operates, as well as his great grasp of how that mixes with the macroeconomic outlook. So I'd like to welcome you, George. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's let's paint a picture of, of where we are, because we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve. We're going to talk about how the bond market works. We're going to talk about things like liquidity crunches occurring at, at times we, we weren't expecting. But let's let's start with the basics. The Federal Reserve has just had a meeting, and uh, Jerome Powell characterized the economy as being uh, as being in a good place. The, the the labor market as being very strong. Fed officials have actually taken a rate cut in 2019 off of the table. I think this came as a surprise to the markets that uh, that had been pricing in at least one more rate cut in 2019. But I, what I find to be curious, though, is you know, the Fed officials pay attention to macroeconomic data especially the kind that comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Right. Now, we just had a big benchmark revision to private payrolls of 514,000, 40-some-odd jobs per month. And you, if you add on the five straight months that we've had of negative revisions to non-farm payrolls, you have 17 consecutive months of downward revisions. I would not call this an economy or a labor market that is gaining momentum. And yet, Jay Powell characterizes it as being strong and indicative of the fact that the U.S. household can continue to carry this economy 
The Fed raised its GDP projections at the same time, on the same exact day that CEOs across America took their GDP forecast down. Is Jay Powell right? Or are the CEOs right? Where do you stand? I, I stand more with the CEOs. I do think that we are heading towards a slowdown. And the Fed is really trying to project confidence and, and also in, you know, has a, a deep belief that their you know, mid-cycle adjustments are going to be enough to actually kind of soft land the economy, mm -hmm. something that really only has happened a few times in history. Sure. And so that's really where I think you know, the, they're trying to project this sort of confidence. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. So you were in the trenches in 98 when they managed to have three rate cuts and, and extricate themselves from the easing process. It wasn't an easing cycle. Um, talk to us about what that time was like and why the Fed succeeded in making a mid-cycle adjustment and stepping back. And how does today's environment differ or not? I guess what really stands in, in, in comparison, what's different from then now is you know, we, we built this recovery based on financial conditions being as buoyant as they've ever been. And whereas, you know, in 98 to 2000, you still had that last two legs. You can say it went beyond and they actually inflated the bubble right. or helped to inflate the bubble. But we are now at a point where we're very long uh, in, in many, many metrics that you and your firm have been uh, tracking. It's, it's not a, an exact comparison between 98 to 2000 where we are now. Uh, the other parallel that keeps coming up is the 2015-2016 uh, industrials recession. And yet we've seen uh, indicators such as, as, as temporary staffing. Uh, that we, we had fresh data out that showed that, that temporary staffing is, is growing at the slowest pace since 2009. You know, we, we've seen, obviously, industrial production go into an outright contraction. It looks as if we've seen, it, obviously, I just mentioned a turn in the labor market. You start adding up the things that the National Bureau of Economic Research counts, all the boxes that they check off. Um, that, that indicate that we're heading towards a recession. So, but what would you say to people, I guess, who say, well, this is the same as 2015, 2016. We're going to come out of this. We've had two industrial recessions in the current economic cycle. This is just another one. We're going to whistle past this. The difference is what's happening in the, in the funding markets, which I know we'll touch upon later, mm -hmm. and what's happening with overall liquidity and how the curve is kind of shaping. Right. And we've had a steep curve. As long as steep curves persist, and that's what we saw in Japan, and that's what you know, Europe's been trying to do, muddle along through this process. Right. With the U.S. curve being as flat as it is, and what that means for farm buyers of our debt, and what that means for the banking system at large and globally, I mean, I think that's what stands different between the 15-16 uh, comparison, mm -hmm. and I, I don't think we can dodge that bullet. So you just mentioned Europe. Uh, we know that, that Mario Draghi has resumed quantitative easing um, in Europe. That was his swan song before he leaves on, on Halloween. Talk to me about how or if should, should Jay Powell be influenced by relativity? Should he care that the lower rates go in Japan, the lower rates go in Europe, the stronger the U.S. dollar is going to be, and the more crowding into the positivity in U.S. bonds the rest of the world is going to be compelled to, to continue piling into? Can he make monetary policy? Can the Fed set interest rate policy agnostically, regardless of what's happening with the ECB, with the Bank of Japan, with the People's Bank of China? Well, two things. They cannot set policy independently because, one, we are the reserve currency and we are the medium of exchange globally. And so the dollar and all the liquidity, which we'll, which we'll get to in the latter part of this interview, I think that plus 
the fact that we are so linked globally and policies feed off each other, mm-hmm. the Fed cannot, you know, really go about it on its own path. So with that as a backdrop, what's the Fed's next move? And more importantly, I think, when do you think uh, markets are going to be pushing the Fed to make another move? According to Jay Powell and company, uh, their next move is in 2021. And then then it's going to be a hike. And there were going to be in a holding pattern until then. Of course, there's been a obvious dissent. There was a dovish dissent by Bullard and George and Rosengren put in another hawkish dissent. So there's, there's obviously a lot of disconnect uh, in terms of where members of the Federal Open Market Committee see this economy headed and, and the policy, the best rate for, for uh, the best policy path. So what does the Fed do next in your mind? So look, I mean, at least we don't have this sort of discord like we're seeing in Europe where Mario Draghi kind of put everyone into right. an ECB QE program uh, at, the, at, at against the odds and, and wishes of, of, the, of the French. Kind of a unilateral decision, it seems. That's right. At least we're still seeing uh, some sort of camaraderie at the Fed. I think that will persist. What I'm worried about, going back to the economy and, and, and what could happen in the very short run, we're going to get a false sense of security. We're going to see the data look a little bit better. Uh-huh. You know, we're going to see the benefits of the easing that the Fed has done, both from them no longer hiking as well as you know, actually doing two rate cuts, you know, stopping the balance sheet roll-off and actually yep. reinvesting into securities. All these things should you know, create some sort of stability, in, in, at least on the economic uh, inputs. The question right. that really bothers me and is what happens as we get into year-end and into the start of next year if we get really true signs of dollar liquidity shortage. So dollar liquidity shortage, let's talk liquidity. And I don't think we can talk about liquidity unless you understand what got us here. So what's different in the current era is quantitative easing and all 22 trillion of it. And we know that the world's balance sheet is about to start growing again, but specific to the United States, how did quantitative easing play into what we're seeing occur today in short funding markets? It's a long story and we we have to probably start in the beginning and and you have to almost uh, break apart different QEs QEs that the Fed actually um, put in place. Educate us, George. So if if we think about QE1 as reliquifying and actually really curing assets that got dislocated post-crisis. Mm-hmm. QE1, I think everyone, I think a lot of people view, you know, actually worked as planned. QE2 and QE3, probably really a little bit beyond what was needed, especially QE3. Right. And what, what QE3 then created at, at the same time as we saw changes in regulatory requirements for banks and liquidity, it, it, it provided a massive buffer and cushion of excess liquidity that was used for liquidity ratios and regulatory needs. Talk to me about the regulatory changes and how they affected what's on bank balance sheets today, what banks have to hold. Just break it down. I mean, it's there's there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, the bottom line is that you know the those that are market makers have one hand tied behind their back, if not two, mm-hmm. and 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 they, it, when it comes down to you know how they manage their their balance sheet, how they get funded who's funding them. And, and we've, we've taken pride, you know, we meaning the, the collective system, that the, you know, the regulatory bodies of the world have uh, disintermedi- disintermediated risks and funding to all other actors, where you have real money investors, you have hedge funds, mutual funds providing liquidity, but they're not uh, mandated to actually be market makers. And no. so what we see- And they're not regulated by the Federal Reserve. That's right. And so what we see in moments like the last couple of days, 
where you, what typically is a standard process, we get corporate tax payments every uh, every, every, three quarter, months, every, yep. every three months, every three months, and you have you know bonds that settle every single week, and, and and there's always a constant ebb and flow in liquidity in the banking system, which should be well forecasted by risk managers at every single right. dealer, shop, and investor on the other side. This should not have been a surprise in theory, but before we get to what has happened, walk us through what's it quantitative tightening alone that depleted the reserves to what we now obviously know are too low of levels. You, you, you've mentioned in the past that, 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 that excess reserves have been cut in half. How did that happen? It's been slow and methodical, but it's been happening ever since. And this goes back again to the overall global needs for dollars. Mm-hmm. And, and you see you know, currency circulation of north of 6% per annum, close to $100 billion per year. Mm-hmm. A lot of that actually not even residing in the US really goes to show that you know, the, the reserves that were in the system that were inflated because of QE3 have basically returned back to the same level pre-QE3. Mm-hmm. And even though the Fed you know, concluded their, QET pro- their QT program, their quantitative tightening, uh, they only accounted for half of that reduction in reserves. The other, other half really was currency in circulation. Mm-hmm. It was uh, other foreign central banks depositing cash at the Fed, which is, a, is an important topic. Sure. Uh, as a well little as, bit of controversy there if you want to talk about it. Uh, absolutely. And, and also the U.S. government decided to have larger cash balances for a whole host of operational readiness issues. You can argue it's like having a strategic petroleum reserve. The U.S. government has a massive cash hoard mm-hmm. to either deal with debt ceilings or whatever may come. Right. So, so that's how we got to the point of being half of the reserves. And that's where people are trying to say that 1.3 trillion reserves is not enough when you know, pre-crisis we didn't have very little. Very little. So uh, liquidity for dummies. How does it work when a foreign central bank sees the attractiveness of the rate that they can earn here? Just walk us through one transaction, for example, on any given day. You have opportunity sets in all uh, asset classes, and that that applies for every single investor. Mm -hmm. And you can pick and choose where you want to allocate your money. You could buy Mm T-bills and and fund the U.S. government. You could buy commercial paper and fund a corporation or a bank. You could deposit that money at the Fed if you are a foreign official uh, a central bank uh, uh, entity. Okay. That specific uh, category that's that's a liability for the Fed's balance sheet has been growing ever since the Fed started to raise rates. And look, that we don't know if was it a function of the Fed needing to have a helping hand in the early days of raising rates and being scared that there's too much central bank liquidity buying T-bills and, they, and those rates wouldn't go up. And then you have the flip side at this point, which, which we did not know, nor did the Fed you know, pre the, the Trump administration and knowing that there was going to be massive deficits and a kind of deluge of, of treasury supply. Mm-hmm. And so now you've you have like you, you've increased your opportunity sets. Now you can decide, do you want to have short-term treasuries or deposit money at the Fed? And what we've seen is nearly almost $200 billion increase in the foreign kind of cash hoards that are sitting at the Fed instead of being allocated into the marketplace. So drainage has come in many forms. Is the bottom line, and all, of, and some of them out of, most of them out of the control of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about your reaction at the press conference. Jay Powell said that this liquidity issue, and I'm wondering if you can, if you can thread the needle and marry it back to macroeconomics for a minute, but. Uh, Jay Powell said that this liquidity crunch that we've seen in the overnight markets has absolutely no bearing on monetary policy. True or false? It's false. I mean, it's true only if they get their arms around it. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that really requires uh, them to see stability for multiple days and weeks. You know, just, uh, just conducting operations and expecting it to go away is not the right sort of approach that the Fed should be taking. Mm-hmm. And I think, in general, the, the idea of a repo facility, which we've discussed before, mm-hmm. is, is one, uh, one way of kind of bridging the gap between getting liquidity into the system when needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of joked around saying it's a, it's a bridge loan to QE eventually. Sure. But you know, nonetheless, it would, it would, it would at least provide um, you know, something for markets. Uh, and, and, and I think to, to come out blankly say that, I think it was, it was, a, it was another one of those confidence games he, ha- he had to say that. Let's leave that facility on hold for just a second, um, because I don't think we can talk about how the facility would work in times of need until we kind of walk through what happened on on September the the 17th, what happened on September the 18th. And was this something that happened overnight or was there a slow build? And for heaven's sake, why do we have quarter ending funding needs in the middle of September? So something's not right here. This is not just a calendar effect. What happened? over that 48-hour period. Well, you need to go really all the way back to last September, right? When QT got fully supersized mm-hmm. and, and you got to a point where the Treasury issuance was also increasing at the same time. That really started to labor and, and put a massive footprint on the dealer network. And their holdings of Treasury start to pick up in a very big way. And you saw that- And as know, their holdings of Treasury picks up, then the reserves are depleted. Well, more importantly, even beyond that, is it's just the idea that they have to fund it. And so they need to actually uh, compete for funding with mm-hmm. everyone else. And they don't have a natural kind of, uh, uh, kind of depository base to actually get that sort of funding. Okay. And so you, you had first wave, which took place throughout Q4 of last year. And we all saw what that happened. I mean, it does create a crowding out effect. You, you start picking your, 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 your battles. What do you fund and which positions do you own? And, and which ones are you mandated to own as a primary dealer and as a sponsor of auctions? Mm-hmm. And so you have that. You have you have what's taking place now all throughout the summer and the end and the end of QT, where the Fed is no longer buying mortgages above the only above the twenty billion threshold per per month. But the, it's hard to get to that cap. They are now. Also, what we're seeing now also in the in the publicly available data is primary dealer holdings of mortgages are starting to go up as well. And so you, it eventually starts to kind of um, leave this massive footprint on, on the dealer side. They need to find funding. You have that coupled with uh, other levered players that don't have access to facilities, which we can talk about in a moment. So and, non-primary dealers. Yes. And you get to a point where, and or, or REITs or wh- whoever you want to call it. Sure. That are levered investors that or hedge funds. That hedge need, funds, sure. They need liquidity. And you, you can... You can kind of full circle come back to what's happening in the last two days is just kind of this reflection of there's only so much capacity to marginal capacity to give out to those sort of investors. So debunk something for me. Did the disruption have anything to do with the attacks on the the Saudi Arabian refineries? Um, Look, we don't know for sure. And and that creates great headlines. Uh, what 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 I know is that if there is any connection at all, and again, this is all speculation. Sure, it would need to be somehow how it works through the the euro dollar and overall overnight offshore dollar markets. And if there was any sort of kind of pullback in liquidity there, that would naturally feed back into what's available as float here in the New York trading sessions. Nonetheless, I think that 
you know, we can't prove. Right. But what we do know is that you know, we saw a the largest bond market, if you think about it, is is really the bloodline of the whole system. You have the global r- system. You have you know roughly six or seven issues that are the benchmark liquidity points on the treasury curve. And underneath those, these which are called on the runs, and underneath those you have repo, which which is viewed to be a level playing field for most of the time mm-hmm. until you get to a point where repo is trading, according to Bloomberg and Financial Times, 8 10%. Right. That's not normal. Craziness. Those, those are high yield emerging market type levels of rates. Mm-hmm. And what is, it should be the, you know, the bedrock of the financial system, which is, should be you know, consistent and reliable pricing on how you fund yourself. Because if you don't, once you lose confidence in the funding side of your positions, you just don't put them on. And, and the U.S. government cannot afford to have levered investors not buying U.S. treasuries. If you look at the overall auction stats, if you look at how the, the auctions have been performing, yes, there's been a massive rally in the bond market, and there's a preference for treasuries because of the higher yields that we offer. Right. But the way they trade and the way they, what was known as they, they the kind of tail or they don't clear at the same level of rates as what's prevailing in the market at the time, mm-hmm. is kind of a little bit of a mini buyer strike that's kind of forming. And if if we get to a point where Either the Fed has to massively inv- uh, steepen the curve or provide some sort of facility or everything, a combination thereof, mm-hmm. just relying on these uh, levered players to kind of be the marginal price setters for the bond market, which, again, talking about three or four hundred billion dollars that trades per day on the on the runs or the more liquid names versus the off the runs versus a $22 trillion market, it's an upside-down pyramid. And then you stack on top of that the credit market, high yield, and equities. It all kind of reverberates through. And, that's, and I think that's something that you, know, you can't downplay the significance and the importance of having a well-functioning repo market. Let's go visit Treasury for a minute. Why were Treasury's funding needs so extreme? What happened leading up to the debt ceiling and what, what's happened subsequent to it? We're now in the, in the period where we've had a uh, another suspension of the debt ceiling, and that allows the U.S. government to restock on its cash needs, and and and, and their their aim is somewhere between three to four hundred billion, and and, and so it's like a checking account balance for the country. In many ways, in simple terms, absolutely. Uh, six weeks can be a long time, uh, you know. Now between now and, and the time that the Fed next meets. Um, do you anticipate that you know after we get past Treasury rebuilding its checking account balance, so to speak, after we get past September 30th and this massive Treasury supply, what happens next? Is there going to be an immediate calm that takes over in the overnight markets? Because that's certainly what Jay Powell projected was going to be the case, that they were going to be able to get control of the Fed funds rate, which is really scary that he had to specify that. Well, look, the last couple of days have felt like a, a few weeks, not days, right? And so let's, let's, let's uh, see what happens in, in the next couple, coming uh, days and weeks, because uh, six weeks is a long time between now and the next Fed meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they believe that you know, getting, getting control of the repo market means that they are going to be continuing this rolling over of repo operations day in, day out, or skipping a day here and there, that's not really a sign that they have it under control. Aren't these emergency measures? I mean, does it, I mean, wouldn't you characterize it with, with air quotes as being emergency measures when they're coming in and, and throwing this up there every day? Absolutely. And it really goes to show that they're probably not ready yet to make any sort of more structural changes on their policy framework, you know, be it you know, a new facility, 
be it how they operate the, the rate band, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, changing from a floor system to a corridor system. These are big kind of structural shifts that the Fed really takes time to think through. Right. And so they're really hoping that, you know, that, that this repo um, sort of uh, chaos that we've seen in the last two days abates, both with the policies, decisions they've done today, with cutting rates and cutting IOER, mm-hmm. and, you know, and really projecting a, a vote of confidence. And the fact that rates are heading lower, not higher, that should start to alleviate some of the pressures in the repo market. Mm-hmm. But only time will tell. But if we, you know, if we were to spend the next six weeks in this sort of Band-Aid approach, I think before that, they we would probably have some sort of either an emergency meeting that's not disclosed and some sort of you know, need to actually come out with something that's much more substantial and concrete. I'm sure he's a lovely person. I've seen him speak on, on many occasions. Um, but what was your first thought when you heard that John Williams, who was the head of the San Francisco Fed, who had said publicly in, in interviews, I'm the only district reserve president who does not have a Bloomberg on my desk. Do you think that, that John Williams running the New York Fed and, and effectively dismissing Simon Potter, the architect, the creator, the engineer behind quantitative easing, do you think that in any way this is coming back to, to, to backfire? against, because Jay Powell was very much for John Williams coming over to the New York Fed. Do you think that that was the right decision? Look, there's a lot of institutional knowledge and the markets group at the Fed is great. And, and look, notwithstanding the little snafu that they had with the first repo operation not going well, I mean, they, they are prepared and, they're, and they know how to conduct these sort of operations. Okay. So I don't think we need to conflate or confuse academics versus non-academics in this, in this scenario. Mm-hmm. I think you, know, you really, if you, even if you go to, to the, today's decision and you think about the, the division within the Fed around the more economists versus market folks. Right. And, and, and it looks like, you know, the, the economists are winning. And, and this is why I, I go back to my earlier point, point about false sense of security. Right. Because they're going to, you know, drink their own Kool-Aid and say, see, we were right. We did everything we, we had to do. This is a soft landing. And meanwhile, a lot of the other undercurrents in the economy are kind of just whittling away. And we still have an unsettled business around the dollar funding right. and repo activity. And we're just in, now in September. I mean, what happens as we cruise into year end? I mean, last, you know, the, the, the end of the year last year was kind of the first glimpses, you said, of just something's not right. But do you foresee pressures building even more than they did going into last year's end? Well, here's the thing. So... Because everyone's so pessimistic, I actually take the other side in the very okay. short run. Be a contrarian. I do think that you know, markets did overshoot on the interest rate side, mm-hmm. and that we probably should see a bear steepening of the curve. Mm-hmm. That again, these are all these are all going to be false senses of security. The markets are going to love it and say, "Look, we dodged the bullet." And we get into an environment where, at some point, rates start to become an issue for for corporate corporates and issuers. That's number one. Number two, at some point, you know the. Each year, year-end gets cl- closer and closer. People actually start closing down operations more towards Thanksgiving instead of actually d- December. Um, and actually, really, The window dressing starts earlier. And there's a lot more kind of paring down of risk, as they say. And so if that is what we see, we can actually see, and this is a very you know, schizophrenic market where one, one, one moment it's super upset, another moment it, it's, it's, it's excited about something. Right, the Twitter market. And so if we... You know, we can manage to kind of hang in here into October 
And we'll see what the Fed delivers in October because they still have a chance to actually do more because now right. we painted the picture earlier of what if repo is still an issue, they're going to have to address it either intra-meeting or actually at the meeting. So, and, and, and then we'll see you know, what they do. If they actually do a version of QE or launch another facility, that might be enough elixir for the markets. And then it probably sets up for a bigger fall in, in 2020. So the June FOMC, there was, uh, there was a debate. There was a presentation made by the St. Louis Fed, standing repo facility. We know it exists. Uh, we know that they've been contemplating it for a while. Why wouldn't they have rolled that facility out at the September meeting? What would be holding them back? And first of all, go back two seconds and just tell us a little bit about what the facility looks like, how it would operate. Sure. I mean, in, in, in a very plain spoken manner, it would be like a discount window light. Mm -hmm. It would be uh, the availability, the, the, the uh, posting of your treasuries as a financial institution to the Fed to actually get cash or reserves mm -hmm. to either meet you know, liquidity requirements and, and things of that nature. So it's, it's really meant to be kind of also a bridge loan concept. I was going to say, it sounds like QE on demand. QE on demand. And, and, and I think partly why they probably, A, they're not ready for it. And again, the Fed takes time to, to work through mm -hmm. uh, any sort of drastic changes. If you rush it into market and you do that after some of the most volatile days in repo market, you may start signaling there's an actual problem in the repo market. Mm -hmm. And so it, 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 it might make sense to kind of save that bullet for when you can assess, assess the situation better and get data points over the next six weeks. Right. Trying to launch something like that in a disruptive environment, I guess, could easily go bad. And, and also, it's not, it's not necessarily clear that they might even want to do that in the first place, because they do like the idea of a floor system with ample reserves. And, the, and look, you know, there's always a lot of you know, picking uh, and poking at the Fed. Yep. They, I, I really do believe, in, in deep down inside, they want the market to function on its own. Because if you start to provide liquidity on one side and collateral on the other side, you end up being the market. You are the market. And so I really don't think they really want to encourage that behavior. It would have to be a facility that still has some strings attached, mm -hmm. and it won't be available to every single market participants. And that's why it, it, it might not be the answer of what they need. They might just skip that altogether and go right to a version of QE. And I think that's what is probably the most important you know, topic from now until the end of the year. Yep. Will they- Market chatter has been talking about QE light, QE light. What would QE light look like? So, I mean, right now they're um, taking the mortgage money and they're allocating it across the treasury curve in a way where it's, it's consistent with the, the size of the bond market. Mm -hmm. and, and they're doing that to be as least intrusive as possible. In many ways, the apparatus is there. They can actually just turn up the dial and say, okay, we have 20 billion of mortgage money. This month, we think that there's a shortfall of reserves of X, Y, Z. We just stack them up and add more to that number. I think it's a very elegant solution to a, to a potential problem and, but that and, does effectively grow the balance sheet, does it not? That's, it does. But the balance sheet used to grow in the past, too, by the way. It only got supersized because we, of the QEs. We forget. That's uh, right. I mean, you know, all of the hyperbole in the headlines. And, oh, my gosh, they did the first operation in a decade. I'm like, um, they were running unconventional monetary policy in between. It's not that they couldn't. It's that they, they, they'd moved on to a, a different regime. That's right. That's right. So if that's the case, right, their biggest challenge especially a Fed that's trying to sound incrementalist mm -hmm. and, and sounding, oh, everything is fine, 
we don't launch QE unless people have this kind of notion, QE means something's bad, we're heading into a recession, and therefore, how do you downplay that? It's all about a PR game at this sure. point. Sure. And so they need to come up with some acronym and- Large-scale asset purchases, right. LSAP. Right, you know, maturity extension programs, all these things that they did in the past, it's kind of, you know, you know, make people not really focus on what they were really doing, which is QE. Now, if they were to go back to a similar, similar net result, but you know, with a different kind of objective, which is really just to put reserves in, mm-hmm. they can call it something else. And I think you know, what that might may sound like is a, a supplementary reserve program. Like, can you come to us because you need reserves? SRP. SRP. Okay. They will need to come out with something to kind of downplay that this is- George, you might be onto something there with that acronym. You might want to trademark it. We'll see. And we'll we'll see. And and if they were to do that, they're going to try to kind of convey that they're not looking to liquefy risk markets, that they're really just there like they've done in the past to grow the balance sheet uh, consistent with what the financial system needs. And if that's the case, they maybe could pull that off. That could even be as early as October, depending, again, what happens with this repo situation up until Mm -hmm. then. Uh, or it could be before year-end. I think the Fed is really taking a step back. They want to get as much data points because they saw what happened last year, and everyone's trying to avoid a repeat of a shortfall of liquidity. Look out over the horizon. Um, let's say that there is some form of QE light. Long-term, is this going to be a permanent solution? I mean, at some point, despite what Jay Powell says, the business cycle will cycle. At some point, we will be in recession in the United States, and we know that we have very little in the way of ammunition in the form of interest rate cuts in front of us. So do you see real QE coming back? What would the permanent solution be, if you will? What's going to happen when we do go into recession? Well, they're still operating under the notion that we are we have a normal working framework that interest rates are still the main tool, and then we go to these extraordinary type measures, although they've rephrased that and renamed it in the, in the, in the last uh, six months. At the end of the day, they still would prefer to lower rates as much as they can. Mm-hmm. And so given the forecast actually has for rates basically no longer being cut, right. they, they, they now are challenging the markets, quite frankly, that they've now managed to do the soft landing and what they'll end up having to do, if they're proven wrong, is to floor rates again back to zero. And by doing that, with this, if if you know this were to happen, and you get the supplemental reserve uh, SRP SRP program kind of put in place, they will just crank that up. They will just crank that up from let's say ten or twenty billion per month to let's say a hundred or hundred plus. It doesn't really matter at that point. It's going to be a function of what they think would be needed to. Uh, kind of replaced the lack of having rate cuts. Well, it's it's interesting because if you want to talk optics and politics, and maybe we can end on this note, uh, you know, I think I think that Powell would would not like the idea of negative interest rates, and I think to avoid having any kind of a QE label keeps him further out of the political arena than if the Fed were to be backed into relaunching full-blown quantitative easing, because then you get, you get the masses saying, well, if you, you, why, why are you bailing out the banks again? Why, why are you doing QE for the banks? Why wouldn't you do QE for the people? And it sounds like your elegant solution and your wonderful new acronym would actually allow the Fed to avoid being politicized in that way. Sure, and again, allows them to, what, 
what really has to happen here is a re-steepening of the curve. You know, typically steepening of the curve is the death nail for the economy or the sign that we're actually heading into the recession, and that could very well be the case. And nor am I an advocate of garden variety recessions. We don't know how that really looks like. We could be in a long kind of, you know, uh, or W or up down. And, uh, Thank you for not having a prediction about what the next recession will look like. I, yeah. It sure does get tiresome to hear people who all have an opinion about what it's going to look like. We don't know. But we do know that the Fed's not going to stand there st uh, uh, sitting still. And they're, and they're actually trying to get ahead of it. This was considered mid-cycle adjustments, minor insurance. They'll go much more aggressive if there is signs of a slowdown. We could argue that maybe it won't be enough to actually prevent the slowdown, but it will at least give them you know, ammunition to wait and see and, and, and avoid having to go to negative rates. And if they do this with how they're actually reinvesting now or even tweak it further to buying short-term treasuries and short-term T-bills, mm -hmm. which they've lacked for the last you know 10 years, then they're not really necessarily... Uh, trying to administer credit into the into the broader economy, and hopefully the populace won't really kind of clam onto that. No, no, no credit easing. No credit easing. Stay out of the mortgage market. That's right, and that that to me, as kind of as a market practitioner, means you need to you know, really watch the curve. You need to watch what's happening with repo funding. You have to watch mm -hmm. what's happening with the money market spreads going into year end. Sure. And also, you know, at the end of the, on the end of the day, this all kind of culminates with how the dollar is trading. And so if the dollar continues to stay strong into year end, then, you know, and, and even though the economy is doing well, we should not kind of conflate that as, as the coast is clear. Right, exactly. Well, um, we should do this again sometime, maybe around year end. But thank you so much for spending time with Real Vision today. We appreciate it and welcome to the Real Vision family. Thank you, appreciate it. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com